0: Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word comes from, yet everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Everything from mountaintop beauty and deep forest to meth heads and extreme prejudice. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet into the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The inhabitants of these mountains through the many years of their existence have lived through and witnessed downright unbelievable and tormenting historical atrocities. They have lived through everything from hauntings to cryptic creatures that show up and wreak havoc on their homesteads. The worst creature, though, may be man himself. I, being born and raised in these Appalachian Mountains, know that nothing is beyond a pale of belief, no matter how fantastic it sounds. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has a long legacy of unending tales and adventures. Come with me as I take you on a fantastic journey through these mountains, where things are not always as they seem. I guarantee you it won't be anything like you expected. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is Season 2 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. How you doing, my good friends? Thank you for stopping by today. Uh, I have with me Anna Lee, my daughter, and Kylie, my granddaughter. Say hello, girl. Hello, girls. Eh, well, they're going to give us a listen today. If you've got any questions about anything, girls, just give me a yell, alrighty? But everybody produces trash. Some of us try to do our best to recycle some of the stuff that can be recycled effect- effectively, but nonetheless, we... Still have a bag of trash to take care of, take to the curb every day, or ever so often. Me, my days are usually Saturday and Tuesday. On occasion, the lovely and gracious Mrs. Bentley goes a bit overboard with the cleaning and extra cleaning, as a matter of fact, so that it does a vary a bit, sometimes from time to time. Being that the average person produces four and a half pounds of trash every day. The local governments are constantly looking for ways to get rid of it, and that's a good amount to get rid of. The powers that be have tried all kinds of ways to get rid of trash. Some work and some don't. Back in 1962, a town in Pennsylvania may have taken the cake on picking the wrong way to get rid of their trash. Sit back here and let me tell you about the poor people and the big town's mistake. Back on May 7th, 1962, the little town of Centralia, Pennsylvania was dealing with the trash problem. They had used several dump sites around town, but for some reason or another, something wasn't quite done right or something along the lines of that. But the dump site near the St. Ignatius Cemetery was so bad that the town had to close it down because of the smell. The 300-foot-long, 75-foot-wide, 50-foot-deep landfill pit set right on top of a coal strip mine. The strip mine had been cleared back in 1935 by Mr. Edward Whitney. Now, I suppose they figured that there wasn't no better way to fill in the hole left by a strip mine than to fill it with trash. After it got to stinking so bad, they realized that they had a problem and shut it down. That led to folks finding other places to throw trash that were, as a matter of fact, there were eight li- illegal dump sites all around town that just kept getting bigger and smelling worse. There was something else that led to the landfills closing. Uh, as luck would have it, Pennsylvania had passed a precautionary law in 1956 to regulate landfill use in strip mines, as landfills were known to cause destructive mine fires. The law required a permit and regular inspection of the municipality to use a pit. George Sigouridis, a regional landfill inspector who worked for the Department of Mines and Mineral Industries, came became concerned about the pit when he noticed the holes in the walls and the floor of it. It seemed that the strip mine had cut through older mines underneath. And Mr. Saragidis informed Joe Tive, a Centralia councilman that the pit would require filling with an incombustible material or it had to be closed down. So on the date of May 7th, 1962, about six years since the landfill was closed and the eight illegal dump sites had become a problem, the town council held a meeting specifically to figure out how to deal with uh, all of that trash. Better late than never, I guess. But the town council arranged for a cleanup of the strip mine dump. But mysteriously enough, the meeting's minutes, or at least the part that's described the purpose and procedure before doing so, were also never written down or maybe uh, just uh, they got lost or something. And you'll see why here shortly. Now, the state ordinance prohibited burning dump sites, but... On it, somebody had to do something. The Centralia Town Council set a date and hired five members of the volunteer firefighter company to clean up the landfill. Nobody knew how it happened nor who actually did it, but on May 27, 1962, somebody set fire to the whole thing just to get rid of it. Not only had they set fire to the stuff in the landfill, but they went out and collected all of the trash from the dump sites as well and threw it in for good measure. The trash went up like a tinderbox and burned into the night when the water was used to douse the visible flames. However, on May 29th, somebody saw the trash flaming back up again and called the fire department back out. They once again doused all of it with water and went about their business. On June 4th, the Centralia Fire Company raced to the scene once again because the whole thing was on fire yet one more time. This time they used a bulldozer and stirred up the whole mess so that firemen could douse the bottom of it this time and maybe put out the burning waste. A few days later, a hole 15 feet wide and several feet wide was found in the base of the north wall of the pit. Garbage had hid the hole and prevented it from being filled with incombustible material. The hole, folks, led to a mine as it provided a pathway to the old mines under the entire town, and that wasn't good. Not good at all, folks. Uh, the town still didn't, many people in town didn't understand exactly what was going on. So on July 2nd, Monsignor William Burke complained about a foul odors coming from smoldering trash at St. Ignatius Church. Still, the Centralia Council allowed the dumping of garbage into the pit. After all, they may as well throw more onto it so they can burn it up before the fire goes completely out, right? Mooch Kashner, the president of the Independent Miners Breaker and Truckers Union, came at the invitation of the council member to look at the situation in Centralia. Mr. Cashner elevated, or least, I'm sorry, evaluated the whole mess and called Gordon Smith, an engineer of the Department of Mines and Mineral Industries in Pottsville. Mr. Smith told the town that he could dig out the smoldering material using a steam shovel for $175. But, as the fire kept burning, somebody decided to just breathe a minute. Heck, it wasn't like something was on fire and going to burn the whole town up or anything. They then placed a call to Art Joyce, a mine inspector from Mount Carmel, who uh, bought gas detection equipment for use in the now-billowing smoke coming out of the fissures in the north wall of the landfill pit. Mr. Joyce Tess concluded that the gas is seeping from the large hole in the pit wall and from the cracks in the north wall contain carbon monoxide concentrations typical of a coal mine fire that wasn't good either folks still not appearing to get the message the centralia council sent a letter to the lehigh valley coal company as formal notice of the fire it seemed that the town council decided that hiding the real cause of the fire would serve better than alerting the lvcc of the truth which would most likely, and in receiving no help from them. In the letter, the council described that start the starting of a fire of unknown origin during a period of unusually hot weather. Then, as the fire continued to burn, they waited for an answer. And this wasn't email, folks. This was the U.S. Postal Service. By August 6th, they got one. In a meeting at a fire site, which were at the fire site which would include officials from the LVCC and the Susquehanna Coal Company. Deputy Secretary of Mines James Schober, Mr. Schober, expected that the representatives would inform him that they couldn't afford mounting a project that would stop the mine fire. So he announced that he expected the state to finance the cost of digging out the fire, which was at that time around $30,000 which is $270,000 in today's money, folks. Now we've gone from $175 to fix it to $30,000 the fire still burning. That's when, lo and behold, at the next meeting, an angel came forth and made a stunning offer. It was made by Centrilia strip mine operator Alonzo Sanchez, who told members of council that he would dig out the mine fire free of charge as long as he could claim any coal that he recovered without paying royalties to the Lehigh Valley Coal Company. Of course, now suddenly concerned about all the details, council wanted to know exactly how he was planning on going about that. Part of Mr. Sanchez's plan was to do exploratory drilling to figure out the size of the fire, because if you're gonna put it out, you gotta know exactly where it's at first. Makes sense, right? Apparently, it made too much sense because Mr. Sanchez's offer was rejected at the meeting because the drilling would have delayed the project, not to mention the legal problems with binding rights. After all, they were dealing with a fire, Mr. Sanchez, and they needed to put it out right now and don't have time to get bogged down by trying to figure out where it is so they can put it out. All of this as the fire just kept burning. At that time... State mine inspectors were growing concerned about the whole thing, affecting miners in the Centralia area mines. So they showed up every day to check for lethal levels of carbon monoxide. On August 9th, lethal lethal levels were detected and all Centralia mines were closed the next day. So there's all the miners out of work now after the fire kept spreading like cancer through the mines under the town as the council sat back and fiddled like Nero as Rome fell. Finally, at an August 12th meeting of the United Mine Workers of America in Centralia, I guess what was left of them, Secretary of Mines Lewis Evans sent a letter to the council on August 15th that claimed that he had authorized the project to deal with the mine fire and that the bids for the project would be opened on August 17th. Remember, the fire started on May 27th and nobody had done anything yet other than the fire company who did all they could. So on August 19th, the contract was awarded to Bridie Incorporated, a company near Mount Carmel, for an estimated $20,000. and Work on the project began August 22nd. So we have went from $175 put out the fire to $30,000 put out the fire to putting the fire out for free, now back up to $20,000. Oh, while wow, the fire just kept burning. You still haven't heard it all, folks. Stick around. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend with Larry Bentley. Now, as if the whole thing wasn't bad enough, in comes more bureaucrats, the Department of Mines and Mineral Industries, who originally believed Bridey would not need only to excavate 24,000 cubic yards of dirt in the mine hole. Uh, there was a... there; They were there actually to inform Bridey Incorporated that they were forbidden from digging any exploratory drilling holes to find the fire that they were supposed to dig out. And they, they were... To strictly follow plans drawn by the engineers hired by the bureaucrats, who did not believe that the fire was very big or any longer active. Now here comes the real smart piece of it all. The size and location of the fire instead going, going to, was going to be estimated based on the amount of smoke coming out of the landfill hole. So folks, the government is going to estimate the size of an inactive fire, which if inactive wouldn't be smoking to begin with by looking at the smoke coming out of the hole. Brilliant, wouldn't you say? Browdy followed the engineering team plan to the letter. They started by digging on the northern perimeter of the dump pit rim and excavated about 200 feet outward to expand the perimeter. All this managed to do was make holes in the ground, which allowed oxygen into them, and we all know what fire does when smear hits it. That's right, it went into high gear. Now, as if there wasn't enough government interaction, the state only permitted Brody's team to work weekdays, shifts, and which were eight hours long and only occurred during the daytime. No need to get in a rush now, just a fire, I guess. At one point, work was at a standstill for five days during the Labor Day weekend in early September. Finally, the fire, which had stepped it up another notch or two, was traveling in a northern direction, which caused the fire to move deeper into the coal scene. Folks, there's nothing that could have been done to make it any worse. This, combined with the work restrictions, greatly increased the excavation cost. Brody had excavated nearly 60,000 cubic yards of earth by the time the project ran out of money and ended in October 29, 1962, with the fire still going. On October 29th, just prior to the termination of the Brady contract, a new project was proposed that involved flushing the mine fire. The crushing rock would be mixed with water and pumped into the Centralia mines ahead of the expected fire expansion. That way they figured that they could nip it in the bud. The project was estimated to cost forty thousand dollars. Heads were opened on November 1st, and the project was awarded to K&H Excavating with a low bid of $28,400. The project started as drilling was conducted through the whole space 20 feet apart in a semicircular pattern along the edge of the landfill. That's when everything that could go wrong went wrong. Centralia experienced an unusual heavy period of snowfall and unseasonably low temperatures during the project. Winter weather caused the water supply lines to freeze, the rock grinding machines froze solid during a blizzard, and both problems inhibited timely mixture and administration of the crushed rock slurry. The good old DMMI started thinking that the 10,000 cubic yards of flushing material just wasn't going to cut it, because clearly there wasn't enough to fill the boreholes. Funding for the project ran out on March 15, 1963, with a total cost of $42,420, strike two. All the boreholes managed to do was to open up more oxygen hole for the fire to grow bigger. By April 11th, smoke and steam now poured from additional openings in the ground and indicated that the fire had spread eastward as far as 700 feet. A three-option proposal was drawn up soon after that, although the project would be delayed until after the new fiscal year beginning July 1, 1963. The first option, costing $277,000, consisted of entrenching the fire and backfilling the trench with incombustible material. The second, costing $151,000, offered a similar trench and in an incomplete circle followed by the completion of a circle with a flush barrier. The third plan was a total and concerted flushing project larger than the second project's flushing and cost and it was at cost of $82,000. state suddenly forgot about all this project and everything coming new physical year in 1963 so after a while folks just seemed to get used to the continuous smoke and steam coming out of the ground from different places because they just were left hanging. So by 1979, that's right, folks, the fire's still burning. Townsfolk finally became aware of the scale of the problem when a gas station owner, who was the mayor of Centralia, John Coddington, inserted a dipstick into one of his underground tanks to check the fuel level. When he withdrew it, it seemed a little bit warm. He lowered a thermometer into the tank and, on a string and was shocked to discover that the temperature of the gasoline in the tank was 172 degrees. Just a little bit warm. Beginning in 1980, adverse health effects were reported by several people due to byproducts of the fire. Carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, and low oxygen levels in the town was getting downright dangerous. Statewide attention to the fire began to increase coming in 1981 when a 12-year-old resident named Todd Dabowski fell into a sinkhole four feet wide by 150 feet deep and suddenly which suddenly opened beneath his feet while he was playing in his own backyard and he clung to a tree root until his cousin 14-year-old Eric Wolfgang saved his life by pulling him out of the hole. The plume of hot steam billowing from the hole was measured as containing a lethal level of carbon monoxide. From there, the people started noticing that their shoes would start to melt, and the roads were coming apart, and toxic fumes were coming up into crawl spaces and basements of houses. In 1984, and it's still burning, Congress allocated more than $42 million in relocation efforts. That's the equivalent of $110 million today, folks. Most of the residents accepted buyout offers and moved as far from the area as they could get because there's no telling how far that vein of coal actually goes. A few families opted to stay despite urgings from Pennsylvania officials. In 1992, yep, fire still burning. Pennsylvania Governor Bob Casey invoked eminent domain on all properties in the town, condemning all the buildings in it. A subsequent legal effort by the Residents to have the decision reversed failed in 2002. The U.S. Postal Service revoked Centralia's zip code, which was 17927. In 2009, Governor Ed Rendell began the formal eviction of Centralia residents. I guess if you don't want to go, they'll just drag you out, but for your own good. By early 2010, only five occupied homes remained, and these residents were determined to stay. One family had come to an agreement with the state to remain. The accommodation had been granted because the home was at the fringe of the affected area. In July of 2012, the last handful of residents of Centralia lost their appeal to a court decision upheld eminent domain proceedings and were ordered again to leave. State and local officials reached an agreement with the seven remaining residents in October 29, 2013, allowing them to live out their lives there. Which, after the rights of their—I mean, after they're done—the rights of their properties will be taken through eminent domain. Which, uh, if they don't move soon, it seems to me like they might not live there much longer. And I mean, live much longer. The Centralia mine fire also extended beneath the town of Burnsville, a few miles to the south. The town had to be completely abandoned and leveled. The Centralia area is now grown to be a tourist attraction, believe it or not. Visitors come to see the smoke in Centralia's empty streets and the abandoned portion of Pennsylvania Route 61, popularly referred to as the Graffiti Highway because it's of course covered with graffiti because nobody drives on it. As of April 2020, efforts began to cover up Graffiti Highway by the private owner of the road. The abandoned highway was covered with dirt on April 2020. Not the entire thing, but a good portion of it, generally just to block public access to the road mainly. Increased air pressure induced by the heat of the mine fires has interacted with the heavy rainfalls in the area that rush into the abandoned mines from to form Pennsylvania's only geyser, the big mine-run geyser, which erupts on private property in nearby Ashland. The geyser has been kept open as a means of flood control. And the fire still burns today, folks. I hope you've enjoyed our story today. If you have, please rate and review the podcast, and don't forget to follow, please. If you'd like even more episodes of all three podcasts, Think about becoming a subscriber for $1.99 a month for these extra episodes. Please join us on Facebook group Appalachian Murder Mystery or Legend or Twitter at Appalachian Murder Mystery or Legend where we can discuss everything Appalachian or whatever else you like to talk about. I'll see you then. Thank you.